Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. For this episode, I had a fascinating conversation with Mark Lakeman about the power of public spaces in transforming neighborhoods, small communities, and even cities. We journeyed together as he takes us around the globe for seven years while he visited and studied indigenous cultures and their perspectives on public spaces, a voyage that was inspired by his disillusionment with corporate architecture, and in particular, by a toxic cover-up underneath a new Bank of America building, a building that his team was involved in designing. Mark is literally carrying on his parents' legacy as his father helped create Portland's Pioneer Square and his mother studied public spaces in medieval and Neolithic villages. Now, fueled by his own vision and applying principles of permaculture design, he is transforming cityscapes into public gathering grounds. As a revolutionary designer and urban permaculture activist, in 1996, Mark co-founded the City Repair Project in Portland, Oregon, where he has directed, facilitated, or inspired designs for more than 700 new regenerative projects. Through his leadership in City Repair and its annual Village Building Convergence and his architecture and planning firm, Communitecture Inc., Mark has also been instrumental in the development of dozens of participatory organizations and urban permaculture design projects across the United States and Canada. Mark is a co-founder and lead instructor of Planet Repair Institute's Urban Permaculture Design course, and he is also a faculty member of Pacific Rim College's School of Permaculture Design. Mark works with governmental leaders, community organizations, and educational institutions in many diverse communities. If you value community vibrancy and connection and are interested in indigenous values of coexistence, this episode will hopefully give you a strong foundation for action in your own neighborhood. Mark, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you for agreeing to connect. Thanks, Todd. It's a pleasure. You have been a faculty member on our School of Permaculture Design since its inception, and you've definitely been a perennial favorite among the students. And I'm excited, and I wanted to get you on the podcast soon, because in less than two weeks, on February 22nd and 23rd, you're going to be back at Pacific Rim College. You're offering a workshop called Permaculture, Placemaking, and Planet Repair. Why don't you share with us a bit about what you intend to teach during that weekend? Okay. Well, I think that uh, the work that we've been doing in our kind of, you know, huge urban laboratory of Portland, Oregon, um, has really, for me personally, and I think for everyone working in the organizations that I collaborate in, um, we really have an expanded sense of how, and a highly developed sense of how permaculture can play a very powerful role in transforming urban urban life, urban structures, urban conditions. And uh, so what we do is, you know, as opposed to just looking at permaculture as, as a series of design principles, we see all of those design principles as a means to build community. 
So there's a social component to everything that we're doing. A lot of people are excited about this term social permaculture, and we've been, I think, pioneering um, a broader, deeper understanding of what that of what that can mean. But we've really combined permaculture with things like urban design and architecture and planning and uh, social justice and equity and cultivating diversity and inclusion. Um, we've really taken this to a next level and we do a lot of our work out in the streets, out in the public right of way. And uh, there's a lot of different ways you can talk about the work that we've been up to. I mean, in terms like, you know, re-villaging, um, reclaiming, uh, it's, it's got various different, I mean, depending on how you, what, what you emphasize in this work, it, it has various different identities that can be related to it. So it's, it's very full spectrum work. I mean, if people are interested in economics and how economics can be re more resilient, they'll certainly learn a lot by doing this kind of work uh, in the vein that we're in. Um, if they're interested in ecological design and want to you know, engage in systems that are really popular like gray water, you know, um, natural building, urban agriculture, youth engagement, um, and then of course all forms of creative placemaking. Um, those are all uh, on the table at once. And we tend to do all these things kind of at once. Um, so it's very integrative. And I think that's one of the key parts of what we're doing. We're saying None of these pieces are really sustainable when you do them in isolation, separated from each other. They have to be integrated into projects that show you not only how you can physically transform things, but how you do it through a social process so that when people are building, they're also learning and they're also making friends. They're also enjoying themselves. And all of that adds up to what you call decolonizing, where people aren't just being prefunctory with each other and acting like time is money but instead time becomes a means to mentor people, to practice ecological stewardship. And when you accomplish a project, you're not just doing it for money, but you're doing it because you believe it's, it's vitally important and you're getting all kinds of rewards, more than just money. You're getting relationships, meaning, education, connection. And uh, you know, every time you do something, it isn't just creating a future waste project product that ends up in a, landfill but you're actually building transformational infrastructure the whole time if i can jump in for a moment i know in your circle and in my circle permaculture is a very uh, well-known term now but a lot of listeners might not even be that familiar with permaculture can you back way up and just give us a bit of a definition of permaculture from your perspective yeah well let me let me start off with a simple kind of classic definition basically that Permaculture is kind of this design system for creating resilient human habitat that um, kind of nestles into the world and respects the world and stewards the world. I mean, there's many different definitions, but they're all kind of like that. The permaculture is a design system. But I think what we're, this is, this is how I think of it. Um, I, love, I love the fact that it connects to culture. It's, it's, it's trying to suggest that there's a way that we could have a permanent culture um, a culture that can persist through time and not result in collapse. Um, so to me, permaculture design is a way of um, engaging with our environment and with other people to collaboratively um, and intentionally 
transform the world that we're in into one that you know reflects and expresses the best that is within us um, so I love I love it I love to think of it that way but my favorite bit about permaculture frankly is the social culture itself what I really embrace about the permaculture movement is the fact that at last for myself I have found a group of people who really thrive on cheering each other on and engaging and supporting each other in a positive uplifting way and that um, is kind of self-recharging and I, I really thrive off of how affirmational everyone is in the permaculture movement. We're excited, we're not threatened by each other. We're excited about each other's success. And that proves something to me that I'm in the right place. Hmm. When you first began your career, you started out in corporate architecture. And then you decided to leave that behind and travel the world. And during those travels, you studied indigenous cultures to see how they live uh, for quite a number of years. What impact did that experience have on you and the career that you would then take up on your return? It's interesting because that story that you, you've just summarized, um, it has parts of it that stop and pull back um, and reset and start again. But through the entirety of that story, there's a thread of trying to see how we can design a better world. So that's why I went into corporate architecture. It was all I knew. I thought through beauty and form um, and, and creating sort of great spaces and you know, symbolic structures that we would somehow inspire a better world. And that was as far as modernism could take me. Um, modernism via you know, the vehicle of, of uh, you know, conventional education in a university in an architecture and planning program. And once I got out, I experienced all the contradictions that I'd been warned about, um, that there's, you know, there's this enormous gap between the aspirations that you're given in school and the idea that there's a cultural mission. And on the other hand, um, the way that, you know, once you enter into the profession itself, you're really participating in the commodification of um, human environments and, and place. So fortunately for me, early in my career, I ran into this gigantic toxic waste cover-up literally under the Bank of America building that we were designing on the west side of downtown Portland. Uh, and that was enough to make me step back. Um, it, it was, it was uh, so offensive and upsetting that I literally bought a plane ticket to fly away and just, I, I needed to step back, but I was stepping back into my education. I was like, okay, I've studied settlement patterns, the way that people basically generate urban form from the very beginning of the history of a village, I need to go take a look at places that are different. How does something proceed through time that honors the original intention? Because Portland, Oregon didn't to me at the time. Somebody got this thing started, but what I didn't realize that it, it was really started as a real estate investment from the very beginning. In fact, the name of Portland was decided um, over a coin flip. It was either gonna be Boston or Portland. And we even literally have a place in downtown Portland where we honor the original coin flip to decide our name. And I, I, what bothers me that it's so arbitrary, that it started off as a real estate investment and as soon as they named it and put it on a document, they sold the land claim to somebody else. So the whole time I was sitting there thinking that we were, you know, we were participating in a great cultural project and that I was running into a contradiction. And then I realized, my God, this thing's been a contradiction from the very beginning. 
So I went traveling. I I can, sorry, Mark. Who, um, this toxic cover-up you were talking about before we head on your travels, who sure. was involved in covering it up? Yeah, it was the largest const, uh, construction contractor in the state of Oregon, and I'll just say it publicly, it was Hoffman Construction. And it was the vice president of this company who said it right in front of me in a meeting of a whole bunch of engineers and architects where we were working on this building. And he was laughing and just disclosing out loud. And, you know, I mean, I knew people did stuff like that in the world, but the fact that he would say it to me and he'd never even met me before, and he didn't even know my name, told me that that this kind of arrogance must be pervasive in my profession. That's what was so disappointing to me. And what sort of toxins were they covering up? All I knew was that there were large storage tanks that were buried on the site, subsurface. And when they were excavating to, um, you know, there's several layers of parking under a building like yeah. the tall office building. And so we were excavating to install the foundations and they found these huge tanks and they decided to drain them and then smash. He, he described what they did, that they had smashed them and then you know, basically folded them with a, you know, a series of backhoes, pressed them into the ground, and then they were in the process of pouring the concrete foundations on top of the buried evidence. Wow. And he described having paid government inspectors to ignore the problem. So they got away with it? Well, I think so. I've never heard of anyone dealing with it, although I talked with an environmental activist organization called Orlo, and they said that they knew about the situation and they had investigated, but it turned, it looked as if nothing could be done. Um, I don't know how that could be. Yeah. So was that, that event the catalyst for your global travels? Yeah, it, uh, it broke my dreams. I had gone far enough. I mean, there were so many things that happened before that point. I mean, I saw people um, discouraging creativity. I saw uh, technical a technical department say to designers, including myself, we don't originate anything. What we're doing here is cutting and pasting details we've already generated because, you know, what we're trying to do is make a lot of money by saving a lot of time. And the more fee we save, the more we bank, you know, and then, you know, the more that we can all be paid. And I just thought, that's not what I'm doing. I'm here to, to explore horizons and you know, generate in interesting stories in the world and crystallize them in form. That's what we're supposed to be doing. This is supposed to be a cultural cause here, even if we're serving, you know, corporate clients or something. Like, it, there's supposed to be some art and beauty, uh, form making is the term, um, to all of this. And they were selling out before we even got started. And so that was disappointing. Um, watching people really just kind of be deadened in the environment where where I was working. So I knew I didn't want to stay long in large corporations anyway. I knew eventually I would have to strike out on my own. What, what did you discover from the indigenous cultures that you studied? Just the polar opposite. When I broke away to go traveling, what I was looking for was a commitment. I was looking for people making a commitment to the environment where they were, on behalf of their children. I think it's kind of a Native American instinct really to say, I'm looking for people who honor their ancestors and set up propitious conditions for their descendants. 
and I was looking for that kind of thing. Um, and I actually found myself saying, I want to see what people are like, because for some reason I feel like I can't see what people are like where I live. Like it feels like we're all in some sort of system that makes, that is reductionist. It, it makes it so that nothing feels entirely voluntary. And at the time I didn't realize that I was literally living in a colonial grid. I didn't realize that, you know, the USA and to a great extent Canada are laid out as gigantic real estate investments. They're not expressions of organic cultural development over time as much as they are simply massive ordinances that dictate how the landscape will be developed, like the Dominion Land Survey of Canada, for instance, you know, mandates this giant development grid so that people on the East Coast are able to select the squares that they want to possess before anybody even lays out the lines out West, and that's how it worked, so that they could commodify the lands of First Nations people. And that was to set up the idea that the world is for sale. That's so offensive to the human spirit and to, to really just every ecological and you know, moral principle. So, and I didn't know that, I just felt it. And when I went traveling, I was like, I wanna see what people are like. I mean, I knew enough about having studied some history and some planning history to say to myself, um, I wanna see what people are like who have never been disrupted. Like people that speak their own language and actually are integral with their place. What are people like that are like that? What are people like whose children aren't sent away at the start of the day to some sort of, you know, basically like public education is not necessarily relevant to um, local life. I want to see what children are like that have their own, like where their parents are still their mentors um, and their mentors are teaching them things that are integral and where the children understand their environment in a much more integral way. Um, what are indigenous people like? Because I think modern people are out of touch. You know, I, I mean, I, I was paying attention to a lot of things, but uh, I was guessing at a lot of stuff that has, ten, has turned out to be really like a popular knowledge or a popular understanding base that we have now in the early 20th, 21st century. Um, but I was having to guess at a lot of things because I didn't even know the word sustainable at the time or resilient or permaculture, frankly. What places did you visit? Well, I started off visiting Western Europe, and I think that's kind of a beginning point for a lot of people. Those are the cultures that they learn about, and so that they tend to, you know, go to explore those. And going to, like, you know, to Greece and Italy um, was fascinating, but at the same time, it really burst my bubble, because I, I learned about Greece on paper. You know, the glory that was Greece, and you're always shown the Parthenon as it used to exist. But when you get there, everything's fragmentary. And you really, you really don't learn along the way that Greece, Greece was an empire that made a whole hell of a lot of enemies. And when you get to Greece, everything's pretty much been smashed. The topsoil has been eroded. Um, you know, species have been annihilated. And, and, and then you see that this has really been a social process with great violence and reactivity. And I didn't really know that before I went there. So I, I was starting to get immersed into the deeper story. But from Western Europe, um, you know, kind of stomped all around over to up into Germany and Switzerland and Netherlands and uh, Scotland and England to visit some ancestral lands and then eventually down into Africa, uh, a lot of time in Egypt. Um, 
and then Southern Pacific uh, down into New Zealand. Um, and then eventually spending a lot of time in Central America just over and over again, because I learned about a certain um, group of Mayan, Mayan people that were famous for having isolated themselves and for having remained intact into the 20th century. Intact meaning that um, they had never been forced, like they'd never been Catholicized, for instance, and never been forced to um, live on land as if, as if they have to earn money in order to pay for space. Like they were still living with their same agricultural practices intact and their same language and mythological kind of um, constructs. So, you know, I, and, and certainly they were refugees too because they were constantly hiding from um, the invading Spanish slash Mexican culture. So that was in Southern Mexico in Chiapas. And I got there right at the onset of the, um, the Zapatista revolution, so a very dramatic time. But I was able to move in and out of um, government checkpoints because I had a letter from a, an institute that works to protect the Lacandone Maya, which was giving me clearance to go in and out of the rainforest. And for some reason, the government respected that. And so did the Lacandone, who let me come and stay with them for periods of time. So, yeah, I got to see what people are like. Um, that are really integral with their place. They establish their own settlement patterns, the relationships between their homes, um, their own form of economy and decision-making, uh, their own way of you know, growing food, which was really fascinating. I, I did a lot of study of them before I got there too, and they're able to grow almost perpetually in thin rainforest soil because of the way that they're regenerating soil even as they're extracting from it. Um, you know, by how, how are they doing that? Well, they plant, they, they, um, it's through plant adjacencies, you know, famously like the three sisters of corn, bean, and squash, mm -hmm. uh, nitrogen into the soil, even as you're harvesting. Um, so they were very careful not to be just depleting the soil. Uh, obviously they're not, they're not farming for the sake of a market, um, like commodity. They're feeding their families. So they're much more attentive to how they're uh, regenerating soil, even as they're extracting. And they basically grow all the way through to the point where they stop. They grow and harvest all the way through until the point where they decide to let it rest. Um, and then there's this kind of slash and burn, hugel, basically hugel culture approach. Um, and then they let it go fallow for a period that's pretty regular. Um, and then they grow in it again. So they're very... Um, their stewardship practices are very consistent. And I knew that going in. I wanted to see that. You eventually went on to be what I consider an expert in community spaces, public spaces. Was there any particular culture or, or place that you visited that really inspired you to take up that, that line of work? Well, I would say, um, you know, my mom, my mom's this, uh, this expert on medieval public spaces. And so through her work supporting exhibitions that she, um, that she, she produced in Siena, Italy, especially, and the books that she's written, and I, I was able to like help her by illustrating those books, um, I became fascinated and immersed in medieval public space design, which I consider, you know, it, it's shockingly beautiful to those of us who travel to those spaces and travel across what are called geomorphic villages 
where just the landscape constantly unfolding and you're feeling the form of the ground under your feet as you're walking. And uh, her whole premise, or her treatise, was really that um, these, these spaces and villages are formed as ecological responses. So I got to learn that from my mom and see how, you know, things are, are developed in propitious geometries, like they're actually designed to be set up to receive light. And then the way you, walk, you look at people occupying the space, it's like obviously the morning market is located in direct sun in the winter time, you know, on, on, on the side of the piazza that receives the light in the morning. And then the thing actually, it actually moves like a little caravan over to the other side of the piazza at the end of the day. And then the pattern's exactly opposite when the seasons are cold. So I got to, I got to learn through my mother how those ancient spaces were so adaptive um, and so beautifully tuned to human needs and, uh, and also climate. Um, so I got a deep immersion in that, and then I carried that with me as I was traveling into those Mayan villages. And I think if I hadn't gotten that background from my mom, I wouldn't have been prepared to look for the social basis. And that's what I saw in the, in the Lacandone village. Um, they weren't as interested in the architecture. They were even more interested in the people. And the people were, the live, like the living culture was the emphasis for them there. Um, like how they treated each other and the incredibly um, evolved systems of how they would make decisions um, was, was, was their emphasis as opposed to the architecture. It was fascinating. The cultural commons had become social. Are there any... Uh, modern or still existing examples of the medieval public spaces? Yeah, uh, people love to go, you know, I mean, just, just talking about Italy, because we're on it. Yeah. Uh, from north to south, you can, you can see outstanding public spaces. Um, in the northern extent of that culture, um, they are more uh, product-oriented and more um, self-conscious, and you can see that in how they dress and they relate to each other. And as, as you head south, the public spaces are just as sophisticated, but they're poorer, so their their buildings are made more out of rubble than like hewn stone or brick or or, or cast brick. But they um they plaster over everything, so it's it's much more crude, and they're poorer, and at the same time, they're so much more friendly. So uh, you can see that the spaces uh have a really consistent logic and attitude from north to south, but the people are profoundly different and, and wealth and poverty has affected them. Um, but you know the basic patterns of uh, how, the, how the piazza is basically an intersection can be observed from, this, you know, you know I, I, I only went as far east as Greece, um, but you could just keep going east and see that same pattern just traveling through Turkey and, and, and from there. But then going west, you see that essential pattern as far west as France and Spain, and uh, even in the English village where, you know, the main public square is at the crossroads, and there's at least one in every village. They all have very, very interestingly different ways that these things are expressed, but the patterns are essentially very, um, very basically similar. What do, for you, and what have you seen public community spaces accomplishing? Yeah, well, here's a fascinating thing. Um, years ago, we in, when, when we founded the organization City Repair, um, 
we were operating off a hunch as the basis of our activism that um, the more public space you had, and therefore the more social fusion was occurring in any kind of given sort of population scale, the more that you had, the less crime that you would have, and the higher the public health, you know, higher the public public health rates would be. And actually, it actually bears out um, that that's true. We didn't have the statistics. We were just like, oh my God, we live in a colonial grid. People living in the USA and Canada have the lowest number of community gathering places of all first world nations because developers lay out our environments. Like they don't put in cultural spaces. My God, we have the high, you know, most, you can read this stuff. Sometimes it's even referenced in, you know, ordinary corporate papers that we have this incredible dearth of community gathering places in our countries. So we were like, okay, well, if that's true, I mean, we all try, and in our group, we were like, we've all traveled enough to know that these places actually exist all over the world where people have different, deeper participation. So that became our cause. We were like, we think that if we engender participation that results in the creation, the recreation of the right of way into community space, that people will be healthier, probably crime will drop, youth will be engaged, and we'll see all of these positive indicators. And uh, it turned out we were right. And that's been the basis of, of how, of why city repair has thrived in the way that it has. People really want to be part of a participatory culture. They don't want to feel like they're alone and isolated from other people around them. How does the so-called colonial grid rob us of that opportunity? Yeah. Well, you know, I think I, I learn more about it every, literally every day. I see deeper into it. But here's the difference. The villages that we love to go visit, like the ones I was just talking about, we save our money and we fly across the ocean to see places that are developed very slowly and carefully over time by people who live and work in the same place. So even if you have you know, political hierarchies that are directing what's happening, you still have people who live right there making the environments that they get to occupy. And then over here where we live, the starting, you know, starting from the East Coast moving West, there was a decision that that wouldn't be the way that things would happen. That first of all, s certain small groups of people would lay out, you know, ordinances on paper that would proscribe how communities we would be developed. And the, the process, as we know, was one where people would go West rather rapidly to claim vast tracts of land and then develop things for profit you know, with this motive that they would gain. And that's fundamentally different than people living in a place kind of accreting their environment as it, as it changes over time, but doing it in a way that uplifts their own life because they live there. It's really, it's really very opposite. So now, you know, I mean, we hear it on the news expressed to us all the time that we're basically consumers and that we measure our economic health by how often housing turns over. And we also know that the more housing turns over and the, long, and, and the less time we spend resident in a place, the less continuity of culture and community there is. Um, and so relationships just, just dissipate. Hmm. I'm reminded with you, of, with you talking about these places of Siena in Italy, where I visited a few years ago. And and the piazzas were enormous and still just the, the bed of activity in the city and all the streets were so ungrid light 
that I would get lost every time I went out. But the, the beauty of that was just incomparable. And I can see it's such a striking difference between that and our, our modern day cities. Yeah. You know, sometimes when, uh, when you hear a critical analysis of the difference, um, you're really hearing, you're really oftentimes hearing different, just paradigm speaking. Like my friend, um, Alexandra Maskell from England came to Portland and she's just, she gets off the plane and she's looking around in Portland as we're moving through it. And she's like, Oh my God, I, I thought Edward Scissorhands was just a joke. She's like, you really do live in a place where you have to number the streets to know where you are, or you use an alphabetical system in order to figure out where you are because you don't like everything's long, straight and flat. You don't have any like geographic or like, you know, you don't have any geographic or architectural landmarks that are organizing your, your system. Okay, so then on the other hand, you have a transportation engineer saying, no, no, the grid is great. It facilitates connectivity so that you can travel through everything and you can get where you're going. I hear two different mentalities speaking there. Alexandra is speaking from a place where you actually occupy where you live and you know it intimately. So you don't need to have things um, be alphabetical or numerical. Things are named after the events that actually happen in that place. And you navigate according to the stories you've grown up with. So of course that's her priority. <clears throat> the transportation engineer's presumption is that you don't really ever arrive anywhere. Everyone just gets to travel through everyone else's space and there's never really a there there. And both of them are right, <clears throat> but their context and their, and their, their goals are totally different. Mm. So I understand both of them. You have, uh, in essence, transformed the tapestry of Portland. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us how City Repair Project came about and the work that you have been doing? Okay, well, um, this is really a fun answer. Uh, I, I, in those seven years I was traveling, I found myself, after being in Venice and listening to uh, Germans and Israelis and Australians and Italians talk about Americans, I became fascinated um, with what other people thought about us. I heard people talking about how, like I heard someone say, God, Americans are so uninteresting. Their jokes are bad. They can't listen very long. Every, all they want to do is talk about the cost of things. And so I overheard them and I said, can you tell me more? I'm really fascinated. I'm, I'm, I'm an American and I'd love to know more about what you think. And uh, so they said, well, okay, you're not bad for an American. We'll, we'll tell you what we think. And I found myself listening and asking questions as I was traveling um, because I wanted a deeper and deeper insight into, into other people's perspectives. And uh, yeah, I wanted to understand um, more about the context from, from other, people's, other people's point of view. Um, can, you, can you ask me that question again, though? I think I went too deep into a memory. <laughs> no problem at all. Yeah, it was about the basically the genesis of City Repair Project yeah. and the impact that you've had on the Portland communities. Okay. So, okay, yes. So asking those questions took a long time until I found myself in that lock and known community. That was really the end of the journey. I had gone as far and as deep as I, I felt like I needed to go. 
And I found myself asking that group of people, what do you think can be done with the time that we have left? And uh, they described all sorts of strategies. They helped me to see the colonial grid. They were saying things like, when you get home, stand in a street intersection and look at all the lines being so flat and straight and just walk a block, go to another town and come to the realization at some point that you're in a gigantic, violently imposed infrastructure that is placeless. And it's so unlike the lines that your ancestors used to draw. And one person literally said, like the, the beginning of City Repair for me was to get um, a, a, a clearer sense of the context through listening to people. So this person said, when you understand when your family history came into contact with these lines, then you'll actually know who you are. And it sounds very cryptic, but what he was basically saying to me was, if you realize that your Celtic people were overwhelmed and basically enslaved by the Romans, then you'll know who you are, because that's when you first came into contact with the colonial grid in terms of your family. It, if you live in a grid, you've been conquered, basically was what this person was saying. And uh, the same small group of people that I was talking with within the village were saying, okay, so now that you know that you live in the grid, you need to realize that really there's this entire program of cultural spaces that are missing. You know, and it's true. As an architect, I was like, my God, it's true. I live in an R5 zone. That means everything is a single family house in the entire zone. I live in a food desert. I can't even walk to the store. Like there is no public square. Um, yeah, and, it, and the isolation is so intense in my neighborhood at that time that in the same week, three grandmothers were raped and a Marine was literally beaten to death on the street. Like that's how disconnected we are that that can happen right in our neighborhood and nobody even really knows it or if they hear it, they don't come outside to do anything about it because they're so afraid. So I was like, yeah, I can relate to what they're saying. And when I did get home, I stood it literally in the middle of a street intersection right next to where my house had been, where I had grown up half my life and I was looking down the street and I was like, oh my God, it's totally true. I live in this giant set of boxes where people talk about getting out of the box and thinking out of the box and we don't even realize we freaking live in boxes. So I was just standing there seeing it for the first time in my life. I'm like, I li I've lived here all this time and I never saw it. Fortunately, I'd just been to all these villages, you know, where all the lines were interesting and everything just opened up into public space all the time. Uh, so I could really see the difference. Okay, but when that, you, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Well, that wasn't really the beginning of city repair. The beginning of city repair was to assert without permission cultural spaces that would bring people together. And at that point, I knew that by doing that, I would also get in trouble because I'd been in my own profession long enough before my travels to know that I needed permission for everything. So I built this fabulous tea house that was a fusion of a Mayan rainforest meeting temple and like an afternoon tea experience in Oxford, England, which I had also been, where I had also been as part of my travels. I fused together different kinds of social spaces that would fit together and tuned it to the aesthetic of Portland, Oregon in a very DIY way and uh, just opened it up to the neighborhood. And uh, I baked cakes, I picked blackberries and baked pies. And uh, the first week there were 25 people. The next week there were 75 and I wasn't publicizing, wasn't announcing it. I was just like, if this is powerful, 
people will talk to each other and they'll invite their friends. Eventually it was overwhelmed with hundreds of people and I was building all of these adjacent environments to house people. And then it was spilling out across the streets onto all these adjacent corners. And eventually we had to take over the intersection because there was no more space for people. There was just hundreds and hundreds of people bringing dessert to share. And uh, the police came and they thought it was so wonderful that they didn't try to shut us down because they were like, one, one policeman said, I'm paid to stop things which are bad, but not things which are good. And this is beautiful. Like this makes my job easier. I want everyone to get along. So at that point then, we actually were inspired to literally transform a street intersection into a public square. And that's where the restoration of the piazza comes in. We were like, this is a basic human pattern. It's, it's urban design 101, literally all over the world that where pathways converge, there's supposed to be a gathering place. So we did that and it was quickly legalized by the city council for everyone to do everywhere in the city for free um, with almost no barriers at all. When you first approached the city councilors, though, what sort of resistance did you face? Great question, Todd. The irony is that we went to the most radical feminist city councilor, uh, Gretchen Kafori, and she is a beautiful person. I grew up admiring her. She was in politics for a long time, so I thought I would go be going to an ally probably had even donated money to her campaigns. But um, she didn't even know what she was seeing. And I think it's really true that up to a certain point, activism has been defined by what you're fighting against and not what you're fighting for. And we were bringing her something to fight for and she couldn't relate to it. So she's like, look, you guys have got to you know, clean up your presentation and you've got to articulated in better terms because we don't really know what we're looking at. And on the other hand, then we walked into the mayor's office and she t just literally pulled this photograph out of my hand. She walks up to us as we're standing in the lobby. She pulls this photo out of my hand and she said, this is in Portland. Who's giving you a problem? And I couldn't even believe it. I was like, well, the department of transportation is saying we can't do this. And she literally turned to this, you know, the ombudsman is basically Superman. Like every city has an ombudsman and they can do anything. She's like, Michael, shut down transportation. Give these people a chance to present to the city council. Something extraordinary is happening. And so the very next day we're presenting to the city council and they didn't even let us finish. They're like, oh my God, these, this community is meeting all of these standing goals and objectives and benchmarks that we've had for years that nobody's been able to solve. And they're not even asking us for money. So at that point, they unanimously legalized the transformation of the right-of-way. And, you know, here's this silly thing. Transportation Bureau wouldn't even let us talk to the city council initially because we, 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 we approached them first. And they said, that's public space, so nobody can use it. And we were like, okay, <laughs> how about like right there, we say that's public space so everyone can use it. And that was the crux right there. That was the crux on which everything turned. And the city council said, that's public space, so everyone can use it. Mm -hmm. Now, what did you say about the right-of-way? Yeah, um, within the colonial grid, this is actually one of the most offensive things about colonialism. The right-of-way is basically reduced just to a traffic corridor. Hmm. And it denies the fact that for the almost the whole of human history, the public right-of-way has been a cultural space. 
So the colonial grid is designed to nullify the effect of, of culture building in the space between our homes. That I could, I could really define colonialism that way. Um, so we overturned that. Wow. And what has come about as a result of that transformation? And this was 24 years ago, is that correct? That was 24 years ago, yeah. Um, it's almost incalculable, all the things that have happened. I can tell you that um, you know, numerous studies and articles, dissertations, doc doctorates have been based upon studying this work. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that's been done to prove its veracity, like people become mentally and physically healthier because they do this. But I think the, the, the biggest proof is that there's something close to 800 projects now in the wow. right of way. And that's just what our organization has been involved with. There's all of these spinoffs, like the whole tactical, um, tactical urbanism movement stems from city repair, according to the founder of tactical urbanism. Um, there's just a lot of related things. I think that we've you know, powerfully evolved, we've contributed to the powerful evolution of permaculture to go from really just thinking that it's about things that are external to realizing that it's fundamentally social. Um, and that uh, you know, the work that we've been doing has been so concentrated in the urban environment that I think we've redefined permaculture in the urban context. And we've realized that like placemaking is the armature place is the armature for urban permaculture. It's the skeleton of it. So, and the social infrastructure is, is what makes it all work. So, was Portland considered hip and quote unquote weird before you did this? Or was this kind of the catalyst for that transformation? I think we've helped with it, but I, I do think that the weirdness was well underway. Okay. I always think that we're standing on the so shoulders of a lot of people in our work. Like for instance, um, I can say that I, I stand on my dad's shoulders because he brought us to Portland and he was hired to found the urban design division of the city. And his work was to create our first public square, which is, you know, why part of a huge, huge part of why this is my cause too, is because I'm just, it's, it's how I was raised. So I think it's very much a multi-generational project. And I, I, I think it's vitally important to recognize that, um, because I don't know if we're really inventing anything. We're like, we're fusing things together and we're evolving things that people have been working on for a long time. What is, you're doing some other work as well related to this. What is communitecture? Yeah, so I'm actually in a building right now where city repair and communitecture are housed. And uh, they're kind of sister organizations. When city repair is first getting started, um, Communitecture sort of um, emerged within it. The cause that we were taking on was so design related that we were attracting a lot of um, artists and designers and architects and planners. And so that sort of group decided to concentrate and start to do some like competitions. We did an international competition to just kind of get started. And then we started to take on kind of any sort of commission that would come our way. So we you know, we started to get some small and some large projects. Um, and then we, we formed an office. Uh, and then at that point, the two became kind of separate, but always cohabitating. So Communitecture is, is basically a, a fee simple business. It keeps it simple, but it's a collaborative, I, I think. And then 
Uh, City Repair is a pretty conventional nonprofit 501c3, um, but the two are basically, um, you know, allies and constantly working together. So City Repair might provide some facilitation for Communitecture. Communitecture would provide professional technical services for City Repair, depending on the projects. How has the work that you've been doing in Portland spreading to other areas, or is it? Yeah. Well, from the very beginning, you know, the projects we've been doing a lot of times have required policy changes. So um, other cities have been taking on these same policies, like our, our ordinance for transforming um, the right-of-way has been adopted by something like 100 other cities. That, those are the cities I know about. So wow. I think that there's more than I know. And there's a bunch in Canada as far east as Nova Scotia. So, uh, yeah, we know that, that things have replicated in terms of policy, and that's very exciting to me. We have a, a school that happens for a week um, during our big placemaking festival here. There's a, we're in the 20th year of the village building convergence, and that's basically like this idea of res, restoring um, a barn raising phenomena, um, but within the urban environment. We usually get about 40 communities working at the same time to build projects simultaneously all over the city. And we're doing all of this training to get ready for it. <clears throat> but during the festival itself, people come from all over the world to attend a school where during the morning, they get they obtain attain all this theory and then in the afternoon they go out and they implement with the Portland communities that are actually out building things. So we're bringing people to train them so that they can go back to their communities and kind of interpret the um, things that we've innovated and then make them their own in their own places. Hmm. In my research for this, I noticed that this past summer, I believe you were in Duncan, BC, which is a yeah small town just north of here. My, my wife actually grew up there. Were you doing similar work with them? Yeah, actually, um, um, let's see, this month, February 28th and 29th and 3rd and March 1st, um, we are uh, conducting workshops in Duncan to design a new public square. And there's a, a two block stretch of street that has never had any pedestrian infrastructure. And at this point, um, it's beset with theft and crime and, and basically drug use. So we're doing a workshop to create the first public school. I mean, it's not really the first, but it's at the main crossroads of the town. So it'll be maybe the primary public square of the town. And then this two-block stretch we'll be installing, we'll be designing in a participatory process. We'll be designing an infrastructure that solves and it well, addresses the problems that are endemic in that place. So two processes complementing each other in different parts of the, of the city. And what sort of timeline will, some, will a project like this be on? It sounds like, and from what I've seen, that a lot of these projects are springing up very organically and, and the community's pitching in and things are getting done at a rapid rate. Is this work in Duncan, you're there for three or four days, are you actually going to be physically accomplishing creation of space? Great question. Well, I hope so. I can tell you that it's starting off with a fairly conventional approach that's um, like a three cycle iterative uh, design process. We go up there, we've done a bunch of research, we go up and have a lot of meetings, and then we have these community processes where we gather um, all the ideas that are percolating in a community and we test out a bunch of ideas graphically. 
and then we come back to Portland to kind of combine things together and come back up to Duncan with three options or so for people to give feedback on. And uh, there's a lot of local leadership involved in this. But, uh, and after the second cycle, we, we, we come away with the, the, the parts and pieces of it in one preferred option. And then we draft up uh, a version of that. We send it around the community before we come back to get feedback. And then basically we refine it and come up and present it to the city council. And then they have something that they can fundraise toward, that they can adopt the design and then fundraise toward that. But our approach, especially with city repair involved, is to, is to come up with an implementation phase that rapidly prototypes um, an example. So part of our proposal was that we would recommend an implementation process that would enable the community to, to literally participate physically in creating um, a version of it. Even if we don't have a permanent version of it for years to come, at least we can set up the space to be a, a place of creative participatory gathering um, right away. And is this type of work, are you doing this in other towns and cities as well? This type of consultation yeah. and creation? Uh, another really um, similar pro process, but very different project, uh, is in Prince Rupert at the northern part of the province, where we worked with uh, the Simshan uh, Nation and, um, and the council there. Council, incidentally, is, is led by a mayor who is um, officially a transition town activist. So it's set up a lot of really great opportunities to have his kind of vision, active vision. But uh, yeah, we went through a process of three cycles with them to um, kind of elicit and then ultimately illustrate a final vision um, based upon kind of you know, native stories, um, native relationship to the land, um, a, whole, a, pro, a whole program of spaces that are um, essential to indigenous people and then um, kind of combine that all into a landscape that really celebrates the amount of water that's coming down on them all the time. So the landscape is basically all sort of directing water to flow and pool and swirl um, as they're under covers playing basketball, which are so crazy about up in Prince Rupert. Um, all these intimate gathering places where they can sit there and watch water flow. They basically said to us, we have to like, please design a place where we're, where we're really like emphatically saying that water is just great because if not, then we're all going to get depressed and say, stay inside. <laughs> so yeah, water is a big part of the design. Circling back to where we began with the workshop that you're going to be presenting here on February 22nd and 23rd and here at Pacific Rim College. Are you going to be doing some of this design work with the students? I believe I popped into one of your workshops a couple years ago and you guys had three-dimensional maps and villages and all sorts of things happening. Is that, is that similar to what you're going to be teaching in this workshop? Yeah, well, you have a variety of different techniques. Um, I go up there with an agenda of things to get done, uh, but dialogue ends up being a, a really big part of it because the students end up having so many ideas and thoughts and questions. Uh, so we end up discussing a lot, of, a lot of possibilities that are occurring to them. But one of the things we will be doing is, is modeling things in, in three dimensions with people kind of rapidly prototyping with colorful paper and you know, glue and scissors and tape and stuff. 
Um, but, you know, creating spatial expressions of, of programmatic elements that the students generate themselves. Uh, yeah, so I'm giving, I'm, I'm trying to help them have pro, um, practice in designing in a participatory way in public spaces. So they're not just thinking about, you know, kind of only working within the, the, the province of like a private client or something, but to really bust it out of the box and take it out into the streets. Which is really exciting. It's it's not a context most people even think that they can work in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mark, the work that you are doing is incredible. I want to commend you on all of it. You've truly transformed communities and and continue to do so well beyond Portland. And it's to the benefit of everyone. And um, my hats off to you for for that work that you've put into it. Can you let our listeners know where they can find out more about you? Sure. People can go to um, cityrepair.org. So cityrepair, one word, .org. And then villagebuildingconvergence.com. People can go there to learn about the 10-day festival. And um, while people are there, they can download this really astounding document that's almost like a book. It's, uh, it's a placemaking toolkit. And you can get um, the text of the the first ordinance in Portland for transforming public space for free uh, But then also these practices and principles and schedules and timelines and definitions that are also very helpful uh, You can also go to communitecture.net so c-o-m-m-u-n-i-t-e-c-t-u-r-e.net and that's our um, radical design office and you'll just be shocked at all the things you see in there like the redesign of San Francisco's water infrastructure to convert a sewer system into a gigantic water catchment system to fight um, the drought. I will put all of these links into the show notes as well. Great. And before we sign off, I know we talked earlier uh, before we started recording and I did want to just check in with you. You just attended an incredible eco farm conference. So I wanted to give you a couple moments to uh, maybe share some of your your takeaways from that and then any any final words you have before we sign off yeah well um i was asked to come down to the conference and um give a presentation about our um, urban agriculture infrastructure up here which is defined as as um having the shortest distance between where food is grown and where people sit down to have dinner of uh all north american cities and um that's kind of a mysterious thing to say. Like, how is that? I mean, you have a community-supported agriculture on every block. What's going on? Um, it's really a, a vast network of things from an advisory council that um, helps the city council to um, defer, determine new food policies and new kind of goals and objectives for businesses and governments and NGOs to work on to um, guerrilla gardening <coughs> in various different forms all around the city. Uh, there's this, this huge strata of initiatives going on and that nobody has managed to map into one thing. So I made a presentation that represented the city of Portland as a map with just fruit and vegetables compounding all over it to illustrate all the stuff that's going on all over the city. It's kind of, kind of fun. The city ends up looking like a giant salad. It was really fun to, to, to present to all these farmers down there. They, they, they're really happy. Any final words of, of wisdom or advice you'd like to say, uh, like to share? Well, I, I would just say to um, anyone who wants to come to the workshop that I look forward to seeing them and hearing what's on their mind 
and we'll work with wherever people are as their starting point with the intention that they'll come away from the workshop really ready to do more than they ever thought they could do before. That sounds great. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to meet with me today. I've really enjoyed it, and I look forward to seeing what you have to offer in a couple of weeks when you're in town. Thanks, Todd. Me too. It's going to be fun. Thanks so much. Okay, have a great day. I hope you have been inspired by this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Mark Lakeman. Don't forget to check out Mark's Pacific Rim College Workshop on permaculture, placemaking, and planet repair in Victoria on February 22nd and 23rd. Also, if you want to explore a career in permaculture, look into Pacific Rim College's School of Permaculture Design, which offers arguably the world's most comprehensive permaculture program, a 10-month diploma in permaculture design and resilient ecosystems. Go to PacificRimCollege.com to learn more. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, connect with people in your community and see if you can seed the idea for a transformational gathering place.